0: Greetings and welcome to episode number 68 of the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. Today, I'm speaking with local fine artist, Richard Yozan. I stumbled across one of his paintings at a local winery that I go to with my friends and now it is hanging in my house. So you'll hear that whole story as well as his approach to fine arts and how we are continuing to evolve as artists. I think this is a really insightful episode and we get into some good art history drama at the end if you're into that kind of thing. So enjoy the episode. Kiss my aesthetic branding Getting entrepreneurship you're listening to the kiss my aesthetic podcast i'm your host michelle winterstein of mkw creative co where we build brag worthy brands through visual identity design and social media you're in the right spot for branding marketing and entrepreneurship advice so enjoy the episode i'm gonna be a speaker Again, I can officially announce that I will be a speaker at the Designer Boss Summit 4.0. This is my fourth time presenting as part of this summit. It is a totally free digital conference devoted to helping creative entrepreneurs work smarter, not harder in their design business. Right now, there are 20 plus amazing speakers coming at you from all over the globe, which is crazy exciting, and topics ranging from making sales to charging premium prices to simplifying your own schedule and everything in between. I'd consider myself the in-between, my presentation, this go-around is all about Motion graphics, specifically animated GIFs, and how they can take your brand from basic to bragworthy. So, if you're interested in that kind of thing, this summit is a no brainer. You can go to mkwcreative.co slash links. That's mkwcreative.co slash links and click right through to get your free ticket. It is 100% free. The summit is happening April 20th through 22nd. It is all online. You can tune in from wherever you are. And please let me know on social if you happen to snag your ticket. I can't wait to see you guys there. Um, Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. After much trials and tribulations, we're finally here. And today I have Richard Yozamp on the podcast. Welcome, Richard.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me so much, Michelle. It was was such a pleasant surprise when you purchased one of my paintings, but... Mm -hmm. uh, but then, when I uh, started, you know, exploring you a little bit more, and I found out you had a podcast, I was like, "So let's do this thing. Let's get on here." So, uh, thanks for having me.
0: Heck yeah! We're really excited to um, have an artist on. I think this is the first fine artist I've actually had. Actually, I had Stephanie Bales. If you know Stephanie Bales, she I is do not a painter. Know Stephanie Bales. She's got a great studio in downtown um, Little Italy area. So she's technically our first fine artist. But you're our first male fine artist on the podcast. So that's exciting. there we go. There's
1: that's exciting. First. You can always find a first some way somehow. Totally,
0: totally. So for anyone who doesn't know you or follow you yet, can you tell us who you are and what you do and kind of how you got started?
1: Uh, Yeah, so um, I'm a fine artist um, here in Solana Beach. We just moved back uh, about six months ago um, for my wife's gig. But uh, formally, I was an artist here from 2012 to 2018. And then we moved up to Bend, Oregon. I'm, I'm an Oregonian, born and raised up there from uh, Central Oregon, Bend, and opened up a studio up there. So I was working full-time for a family business that really didn't pan through. And uh, then I just kept doing art, and it kind of just overlapped nicely. to came a uh, full-time gig. And then when my wife got another opportunity to move move us back down to San Diego... I'm a big time surfer and love the weather, obviously, and everything. And I was like, yeah, let's do it and found a place that had a studio. I'm in my studio right now. You can see I got I got a painting of Yellowstone behind me. I got a bird of paradise over here, some brushes. And and, uh, and so I was like, great, yeah, let's move it back down. And so just opened the studio up about six months ago. And uh, got a couple shows going and uh, just kind of, you know, getting the party started again <laughs> for the Amazing. third time uh, back in San Diego. So uh, that's kind of a, a brief overview of where I'm at right now.
0: Yeah. Third time's a charm. The, yeah. the greatest misfortune of having a podcast as a visual person is that most people won't be able to see your stuff. So they'll have to come find you on Instagram and all the
1: places. Well, you should have put your painting behind you.
0: I know I have it. It's right. It's the other wall. It's not, I don't yeah. have any chairs that direction, Well, you're holding hands with it right
1: now. That's Exactly. What exactly.
0: Yeah. But how would you describe your work and your visual style? Are you working predominantly with paint as a medium or how did you kind of get to what you're now currently doing?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I'll just go back to kind of like my trajectory as an artist. So uh, I was always painting, drawing as a kid. I mean, I was drawing like I was big into animation as a kid. So I loved uh, like Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers, um, even like Pokemon and stuff like that. So I would constantly be drawing these characters. And even when I was like four years old, I was drawing like muscle tone and, and, you know, shadow definition into like a a Ninja Turtle guy and, I'd cut them out and like hide them places as like action figures. And my parents were like, man, you're drawing like good stuff. And you're like five years old. And I was like, I don't know. I'm just copying what I'm seeing. And so that always progressed, always drawing. And then I got into actual painting on canvas when I was a teenager. I I did my first couple canvases when I was like 13 or 14. Uh, I actually still have those right over here. (laughs) I'll never get rid of them. And then that progressed through high school. and, And it was just a hobby that I really liked, but I was also big into sports and, you know, school and, and, you know, social life friends. So it was, it was just more or less a hobby. And then, um, but then I went to college and I went to Montana state mostly for skiing and snowboarding. I was big into snowboarding and they had insane mountains up there. And so I went up there and they had an art program and I was like, Oh, I'll just, I'll you know kind of follow this line and and soon realize like uh you don't you don't need an art degree to be an artist <laughs> like at all you know if you're a creative i feel like any real creative is like you got to get your hands on it you got to i'm very left-brained i think that's the side of the mm-hmm. brain that's the creative and uh my wife's very right brain. so we got a good yin and yang <laughs> but uh but yeah, so I um, I did the art kind of path for about a year and a half. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. And and the people that I was with and the creativeness was just not the direction. Everyone's painting these, you know, I well, now I'm a landscape painter, but, a bit, you know, beautiful, romantic Westerns and Buffalo in the hills and very, you know, very particular, very classical. And so I was like, I was doing more abstracts. Like I would just, I mean, nowadays you see those viral TikTok videos where people take cups of mix paint and they pour them onto a canvas. You know, you see that stuff all the time. I was doing that in like 2010, just you know, messing around and and then I would do all the art shows with the kids, but I was going for business marketing. And so I knew how to market myself and price point it right. So I would show up, there's two big art shows a semester, and I lived in a fraternity at the time I was a frat mm-hmm. guy. And Sorority girl myself, this,
0: so I feel you. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. So <laughs> we had this. Uh, we had this giant party room basement, but it was only used Friday and Saturday nights. So from like Sunday night until Thursday night, I would pretty much use it as an art studio. So I just put out canvases and just dump paint on them and get really crazy in there. And then we'd have these art shows, and I would do like thirty to forty paintings, and then show them at various art shows around the college or around the town. And I'd price point them at like, you know, I'd buy a canvas for 10 bucks and I'd price point them at like 40 bucks, $45. And then you'd get these art students that had been working on like one or two paintings for the whole semester. And they're price pointing them at like $1,500, mm-hmm. you know, two grand, five grand. And you're like, I'm looking, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Well, they wouldn't sell crap. Mm-hmm. And then I'd be walking away with, you know, like a $1,000 and I'd be mm-hmm. like, you know, when you're 19, 20 years old, you're like, holy cow, I'm gonna have the weekend of my life. <laughs> and so totally, yeah, so I would just in college, I would paint during the week, do my school paint My my uh, room at the fraternity looked like a little like art gallery, because I just had all my paintings everywhere and, and just kind of progressed that way. But it was always just a fun hobby. It was nothing that I really was like, Oh, this is my line. Like, I thought I was gonna go work for Procter and Gamble for a little bit in Cincinnati. And uh, and then blah, blah, blah. But then my senior year of college in 2012, um, my best friend had moved down to San Diego. He moved to Ocean Beach. And he was living with two friends of ours, well, two, that were twins. <laughs> they moved down here to become two twin strippers. <laughs>
0: And okay. So, it takes yeah, a turn, yeah, this it was, story. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was awesome. They are amazing gals. And, and they they were in it for a few years, but they were making like crazy amount of money because they would like uh-huh. synchronize their dances. They're crazy athletes. So I visited spring break because I, I was like, I got to get out of Montana. There's nothing going on here. And uh, visited San Diego for spring break 2012. I was like, yeah, this is a hundred percent where I'm moving. They were cool with me moving in, kind of couch surfing for a little bit. So moved down to San Diego. I mean, I graduated on a Saturday, packed my car up and left on a Sunday morning, like out of here. There year.
0: you go. Nice. And,
1: uh, yeah. And then just had like, I think I had 18 paintings in this old BMW, a drum set and like four guitars. I was a musician at the time too, just getting all sorts of creative. And then just cruised down, pulled up and, and me and my buddy found a place and had a little garage and just started painting. Got a job at a t-shirt company called the James Gang in Ocean Beach. And that's where I learned how to do silk screening. So
0: Okay, now we're getting into it. All right.
1: Yeah, so a lot of like your end of things is is I would take logos or Mm -hmm. develop logos. And so at the same time, I was learning how to silk screen and, um, you know, really get those clean lines on t-shirts. So, I mean, everybody knows, you know, you see those like Nike logos and stuff. I was doing all that, not for Nike, but various san diego companies and so i learned silk screening but the biggest benefit of that is i got kind of a pseudo graphic design degree out of it because i had to learn how to rasterize images cut Mm -hmm. out images Mm -hmm. color match stuff uh, a lot of photoshop stuff so i worked there for about a year and a half and really dove into what it took to actually make a brand kind of stand out, make a banner stand out, you know, the stuff you, you know, Just about speaking it. my
0: language for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Catch your eye, you know, make colors work. You know, I mean, there's a reason McDonald's has yellow and red, you know, mm-hmm. and some companies want that black and white, you know, it goes with their style. So I really learned how to brand it well and, and figure out, you know, color theory, make eye popping, clean images, and then also how to silk screen them. So one day this eccentric Australian guy comes in, his name Shane Bowden. You can look him up. He's, he's an interesting dude. He, uh, he was a really prolific, fine artist. So he, he was an Australian, had a gallery in Australia, uh, had a gallery in Hawaii. And then he opened up a gallery in La Jolla and I did his first t-shirt line. And so he was kind of shopping around, came in, met me like, Hey, I'm looking for a, A studio assistant basically means you're in there painting canvases and kind of doing all the all the side work, so he can do his creative. And uh, I was like, "Yeah, I'm in. Sounds awesome. I get to paint all day on canvas and work for you." And so I quit the t-shirt company and then started working for him in Miramar. And so we had two huge bays, like massive warehouse. We had a gallery in La Jolla, and we had we were opening up his first order was a uh, his first gallery in Tokyo, Japan. And it was 965 paintings. And we had to crank it out in about two months. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You break that down. And so but they're all silk screens. So it was like, very Andy Warhol derivative, Right. right? Louis Vuitton logos. And Hermes bags and um, just
0: overly pop art vibes, multiplicity, the whole thing.
1: Yeah, very. Yeah. You'd paint it red. You'd put a ghost image of uh, Marilyn Monroe over it. You go in, you paint sections of the face, then you do it black over the top. Boom, boom, boom. There was a big formula, but I worked for him for about four years. And over the course of the time, I was fulfilling orders. We had two galleries in Japan or no, just Tokyo, Tokyo. Osaka, Japan, um, Hong Kong, Singapore, we had a gallery, Toronto and UK. And then, yeah, and I opened three galleries for him um, here in San Diego, two in La Jolla, and then one in Little Italy where your other artist was, you were mentioning, and worked for him for four years. And I mean, I was making tons of money because I was doing his whole production line, which totally, yeah, our record in one day was 136 paintings.
0: Gosh. One day,
1: <laughs> 5 a.m. to like 8 eight p.m. just straight. It was all like Chanel, Chanel. And like, yeah, just, it was it was almost like cringeworthy tacky, though. Like OK,
0: yeah. that was going to be my question. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. your work is not that now. Like your work has definitely caught my eye. But I was wondering about the actual technicality of your of the pieces, because there are so many modalities just in one painting. Like you're not only relying on paint. And canvas.
1: No, no, yes. So, yeah, so basically from that, I started developing my own style of silk screening. So I was, I wanted that pop art because I love the magic of silk screening. Mm -hmm. But so if you go back, if you go to my Instagram at my last name, Yozamp, Y-O-Z-A-M-P, I was getting silk screens made of like pipeline Hawaii. Or I was getting silk screens made of like the Great Pyramid of Giza. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had silk screens of the uh, Moai statues that are on Easter Island. And so I was toying with those elements of taking like these raw, either old ancient structures or, or things that all of humanity's always kind of wondered about, like, and then, but adding in that pop art element. So like the great pyramid of Giza, I would do like pop art colors. Like I'd, I'd make it like, tur- like, uh, like light baby blue, you know, and then I would, put in old magazine clips of like old, like Ford Broncos driving up next to it, you know, and like surfers with their surfboards. So if you go, if you peel through, you can kind of see where I evolved from like how I got to the style now that I'm painting on fabrics and stuff. But yeah, so I worked with him four years, then I moved up to Bend. And then that's where I kind of cultivated this newer style of doing landscape paintings. And it came out of a lot of necessity. That's your
0: subject matter up there in Oregon.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Oregon, you basically came to terms with you have to paint mountains. Like, because there's the the give and the take of like being a creative, you know, wanting to want. I mean, if it was up to me, I would just throw a a splat of black paint on a canvas and say that's art. And some artists do do that and they make a lot of money. That shit don't fly in Oregon. Mm -hmm. People want that craftsman you know, majestic. I'm looking through a window into a mountainscape. You know, they want that. And so I was like, I gotta paint mountains or else I'm not gonna sell anything and people are gonna think my art's dumb. So I just started painting uh, mountains and I made a silk screen, a big silk screen of the ski resort there. So I could kind of do that replication, um, mm-hmm. but of something that was similar to everybody in the community. And so started doing that, and that was going well, and then uh and then I realized I was like, my, it looks the same as everybody else who's painting mountains. And so I was like, how do I differentiate my landscape painting from everybody else? And so we got, we got back, my wife and I got back from a trip to, I think it was Costa Rica in 2018 or 19. And uh, she had this really cool dress, but it was like really long past her ankles flowy dress that had this really cool kind of pinkish. Was it
0: from the tie-dye shops? There's so many tie-dye shops in Costa Rica. I They're was just hard. there 2017, 2018. So probably just before you. And I bought an extravagantly long tie dye dress. That was like, basically like, as if you took yeah. a king size bedsheet and like cut a hole in the middle. So you could like put it over your head. Like it was that big. I did notice a ton of tie dye dresses there and the, the fabrics in Costa Rica. And I think Bali have such oh, interesting yeah. florals that we just don't, it's so interesting
1: how much it's part of the culture. I don't think she got it in Costa Rica, but it was very Costa Rican vibe, very sure. just big, flowy, you know, very and like t- tight here, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like erotic, sexy dress, but like very flowy. So we get back and she has a big rip in the dress. And I was like, I was like, well, right, what are you doing with this dress? And I was out of canvas. So it was like almost like a necessity. I'm very resourceful with my stuff. And uh, I was out of canvas, but I had all these frames. And I was like, I need something to paint on. And I was like, well, what's wrong with this dress? And so I stretched it over canvas, silkscreen a mountain onto it, Mount Bachelor in Bend, I'm Sure, a lot of mm-hmm. people know of that ski resort. And um, boom, sold within like 12 hours of posting.
0: Really? Interesting. And,
1: uh, and then I was just like, well, duh, like people are sick of sky blends, you know? Yes. Or like, yes. I'm taking a dry brush to make a cloud. You You're know? doing a
0: Bob Ross moment with smudging things. Yeah,
1: exactly. yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to talk shit on Bob Ross. I, yeah, of course. That guy, but it's yeah. like, who hasn't done it? Who hasn't? It's like, it's like I was telling you about the spill work in the cup. It's like, I, if I see another TikTok or Instagram photo of that, it's like, great. Mm-hmm. You know? Blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But so I. Painted on fabric, and then I was like, Whoa, there's a whole new dimension to this! Like, and it was just the painting outline in white, silk screen it, boom! And I I found this like old school because I love going to thrift stores and finding Mm -hmm. old frames, you know. Mm -hmm. From like, so it had this cool oval frame on it. It Just I'll send you the photo, it's please, yeah, yeah, it's really pretty. It's a cool, obviously, you know, the story now, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, Well, I should explore this a little bit more. And so then I would go to uh, different, like, old, like, it started with dresses and clothing. So I'd go to, like, thrift stores, you know, and I'd be like, oh, look at this jacket. You know, this thing has Mm -hmm. got about 30 by 40 inches. I can do some of that. Look at this dress, blah, blah, blah. And then I would go to fabric stores, try to find as many vintage fabrics as I could. Some of the time, I'd just pop into Joanne's fabrics because Mm -hmm. they had cotton, which was Mm. hard because you can't do it on polyester. Polyester has this crazy stretch to it, and then the canvas would always rip and... Learned that lesson the hard way with some clients. But, and then I started painting on that and I, and I was like, this is cool. Cause it really adds a different, you know, dynamic. You can see it on the painting behind mm-hmm. me. This mm-hmm. is painted on a comforter we got from, like, this is like a bed comforter.
0: Right. Okay. And I, I can see that. It,
1: Cause I was like, I'm not taking that to the beach. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> let's use this for the beach. I was like, nah, I'm gonna use that for a painting. Or if you look at, if you look at this right here, you can see that that's fabric. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know. So it just came out of a it came out of slight necessity, but then, you know, it kind of always just happens like that. It's very serendipitous. And then the coolest thing is if you go to my Instagram, you'll see Crater Lake. That was the first one where I started using it as a reflection off of water. So when I started doing that, I painted my first Crater Lake, which is you know, the National Park deepest lake in the United States is beautiful. We got we my wife and I would go there once a month. It's just it almost it like we took her my mother-in-law there and she started crying. It's, it's really that pretty. And so I painted it and I didn't dye the fabric like I do mm. now. And so I was like, how do I add that depth to the water? Mm-hmm. Still getting that fabric reflection coming off of the sky. And I was like, well, what if I get it soaking wet? And then I literally do dye it through. And I was like, boom.
0: There you go. Bingo. Perfect.
1: Yeah. So I would do like a, I would look at photos as reference, dye it down. So it added depth and water feel to it, like the painting you have. Mm -hmm. You can see Mm -hmm. how I dyed it blue going up to the coastline white. And then I did white to pink to yellow to Mm -hmm. represent more of like a sunrise, right? Mm -hmm. But still has that the fabric that bounces off of the water. So it really represents clouds.
0: It makes it really visually intriguing. And the whole reason I ended up owning this painting is because you're showing currently at Carruth Cellars, which is the mm-hmm. wine club that I'm a part of. And I go with my friends probably once a week. And yep. I've been going there for so long. I've had a membership, I think since 2015 and I've never liked any of the art that they've hung there. I'm very picky about art. And I sat yeah. across from this, the one of yours. And I was like, I, need this. This is all the colors of my place. It's so layered in a really interesting way, but it still feels like hyper local. Obviously it's Fletcher's Cove. I used to live in Solana Beach right there. Um, super recognizable to me, but also vague enough to be kind of anywhere as well. Exactly.
1: Yeah. which I think
0: is an important element to your work. But because you have so many modalities here, you have the fabric first, then the dye, then the paint, then the mixed just materiality of it was really intriguing to me because it didn't feel like anything I'd seen before.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's where once I started doing that when I was up in Oregon – I mean, I couldn't keep my stuff in inventory. I mean, wow. I was just because people loved. It, I would do like Trillium Lake, looking over Mount Hood. That's another one you can see on my page. And so once I started really working with this fabric and landscape, and it added just a, a almost a surrealness to it, a little bit of like a psychedelic look. And but it yes. all depended on the fabric. You know, some fabrics like the one you have is is almost pop arty. It's big, bold. They're big yellow flowers that are solid colors, but some of the fabrics I use are very intricate floral or almost like, you know, like tie dye wavy, mm-hmm. trippy. And so, so, so when I get a commission, clients, I work with them and I go, well, what kind of fabric do you want? And they'll be like, ooh, I like the Aztec style, you know, right. or I like uh, floral or I want trees or I want like uh, very repetitive dots or geometrics, you know. So uh, it's really cool because you can—it's—it's it's another whole world within the world of what I'm doing.
0: It's and what I like so, to call an infinity idea. So this yeah. is an idea that if you have the framework, you have an infinity number of possibilities. And what I admire about it as well is I see the psychedelic influence, but I almost see it more as a glitch. Like it's a glitchy like as if you downloaded two images at the same time and they somehow like got like merged yeah. into one image where in my line of work, like when files are corrupted, that's it, kind of gives you that double exposure. So I think there's a whole like digital commentary that could be part of this and, and, you know, how we our brains perceive images and how we're inundated with images. But I'm an art history major, so I can go like and oh, do the dissertation yeah. of it, right? So oh, my yeah. background actually was in video. So I studied fine arts as well. And I was a fine art and art history double major at University of San Diego. And my whole show, I always thought I was bad at drawing and painting. So I refused to take drawing and painting classes. And I only took like social sculpture, new media, video, digital arts. That was way more my emphasis. So I'm I'm so uh, impressed by painters because it's something I never like, I never even put my toe in that pool because I was like, oh no, that's not for me. Like that's not my domain so it's so funny because I think the two actually are very related have you got that that feedback before about it feeling almost digital
1: yeah yeah well when I was in college and I wanted to be an art major I took four different art history classes I mean it it started with cave you know Mm -hmm. sketches Mm-hmm. All the way through the Egyptian arts, the Roman period, medieval, Baroque. I love mm-hmm. the Baroque style. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, that was beautiful. Like Bernini when he when he had that sculpture of the of the fingers pressing into the into
0: the side. and okay, I've seen it in person like six times, oh, and every time God. I see it, yeah. it's in the Villa Borghese. It's in Rome. I studied abroad in Rome, and my oh, I had the best professor in Rome, art history professor. It's given I,
1: me it's given me goosebumps because when I saw that, I was like. I I love, um, I love, obviously Michelangelo, and like I was like, Michelangelo is amazing. But when I saw Bernini, I was like, this guy took it to another level. I mean, he, he's when he put the hands in there, you could almost feel the sculpture on it, and I was like, oh my gosh. But then when they started getting into like Kandinsky and and Monet. Mm -hmm. and those, mm-hmm. those, those modernists and those post-impressionism. Yeah. And then when they got like Neo expression, I mean, I'm a huge, like, uh, like uh, Michael Jean Basquiat fan. Sure, that sure. Style. But it's like, I, you have to kind of know that backlog in order yes. to get to where you are, And then you have to know where you stand. Like if you're an artist, you kind of have to know where you're at. Like I'm a West coast guy. So my art has to reflect what I'm doing. If I go up and I paint, you know, like a, A dinosaur face with rigid teeth and stuff. Does it make sense? Probably not for what I'm trying to do. So like when I went to Oregon, I did it now. Now that I'm back, I'm like, okay, how do I morph this into being a San Diego, very Southern Californian style? And so like for your painting, for example, that's three canvases. Mm -hmm. One has that. Then I took real sand to represent the beach in another canvas. And then the actual sky portion with the front edge being Fletcher's Cove. And so if you go down to Caruth, which I have a show at, the 9th of April. It's April 9th. Yeah. Yes. So I'm going to be showing um, a bunch of new like Southern California style paintings and then three paintings that I have from my Yellowstone collection. I just love Yellow, or not not Yellowstone, uh, Yosemite. Mm-hmm. So I have the valley behind me. And then I have uh, a, a Dawn Wall, Vel Capitan, and then um, Half Dome. But I'll be showing work there. But um, but yeah, you can kind of feel like, you know, when you move back down here, how you can kind of morph it into a California style. And doing my uh, Yosemite collection was kind of a nice bridge from Oregon, Central California now coming down down to Southern
0: Southern California. Yeah, no, it's so important for designers and creatives to have an understanding of art history. I really, really harp on this on the podcast and the Facebook group, everything, because it's also the idea that no idea is original. And especially when you're creating branding for someone, if you don't understand the iconography of a mark and all of a sudden you're using something that actually means something else, you're almost putting yourself at a liability. Like you have to understand these things and we have to understand why art deco looks art deco and why pop art looks pop art and why, you know, post-impressionism is post-impressionism. What was going on politically? How does that inform Dada and inform, you know, collage art? And if you're going to use collage art, you can't divorce collage from, the turn of the century and world war 1 like they're all related and world war into world war 2 like all of those things yeah that's a visual communication style and i think a lot of designers get technically trained but they don't get historically trained and that there's a huge gap in that one of the questions i get asked without fail whenever i go live on my instagram or tiktok to work on a brand design is where i find inspiration my answer is always two things travel or art history. I actually studied art history at the University of San Diego, and I pulled together a 30-ish minute masterclass called Kiss My History, Art History 101 for Designers, on my website. The idea here is that after this little crash course, you'll have all of the overview of art history from the printing press to the modern era with an idea of how to incorporate that symbolism and historical design reference into your work. I give you examples of how brands use these different historical devices and cultural iconography to communicate their brand ideas. And at the end, I want you to be able to know which aesthetics best reflect the core values of the projects that you're working on. So you can actually implement this into your design work. And it makes you sound super freaking smart in front of your client when you can drop some art history terminology on them. You can take advantage of this training on my website. It's mkwcreative.co slash kissmy-history is the link. It'll also be linked in today's show notes. Enjoy.
1: A hundred percent. And, and like, I'll say the same thing with artists when it comes to, like, if you want to be a true artist or true designer or whatever, you also have to, on the other end of the spectrum, realize that you're, you're, you're an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You're you're running. If you don't have a foundation of what you just said of knowing where you came from, then you're starting on the bottom ring of a ladder that's already been climbed for you. Like Mm -hmm. if, If you don't know where you're starting from, you're like, oh, today I'm going to be a designer. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, you need to spend about two to three years figuring out what design is, where it came from, why it started. Go back to everything. Go back and study Louis Vuitton. Figure out why Mm -hmm. Chanel and Coco, why those Mm -hmm. brands are there. Uh, If you want to be a marketer, look at how they marketed diamonds in the 1940s. Like that's the most important thing to figure out you know how Coca-Cola started you got to mm-hmm. you got to go back but then for art it's even crazier because it's not only something that uh you know looks good inside of a rich person's house it's also a cultural representation of the time so mm-hmm. back in you know the 1500s 1600s during the Spanish Inquisition if you wanted to paint anything other than a, a religious symbol, good luck. Mm-hmm. You're going to get hung and burned. Like, could mm-hmm. you imagine if like, they're Oh, I'm Pablo Picasso, you know, it's like, right. No, 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 no. That doesn't represent what we got going on. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> you know Absolutely. And that most yeah. art has existed. And it's such, it's such a shame that I feel I didn't get enough of an Eastern art education because there's so much like, depth and meaning and value in Eastern art. So like Chinese art, Japanese art, I mean, even into the Pacific islands, like there's so much of that that I think we miss because of being like a more Western culture. And my classes were all focused on Western art and Western artists. But like you said, Art as we know it now did not used to exist that way. Art was a form of documentation pre the camera. And it was a way to paint your kings and your oligarchs and your royals and these battle scenes and to tell stories and to communicate to people that were literally illiterate. So it served a very utilitarian purpose. And you didn't, like you said, they didn't, artists didn't have free reign creatively to make whatever they wanted. Paint was expensive. Canvas was expensive. Materials were expensive.
1: And your your line of what you could paint Was Mm -hmm. either you get you had two ways of getting commissions, it was from the royal family or the church. That Mm -hmm. was it up to even the mid 1800s in Europe. And then, but then you had the printing press, and the printing press, even black and white, offered a way to be like, Hey, come down and check out this guy doing something different. And the only difference could be like, like the can't remember the artist, but um, the girl with the pearl earring. Just the fact Vermeer. that she looked over her shoulder mm-hmm. was a game changer because it it gave this almost unobtrusive sexual vibe to a portrait where normally you'd have like you know your you'd look like this totally, and it just it just kind of morphed into this. Well, what else can this be? And and it was just the sliding scale, and then you get into you know, the 1920s and 30s. And it's like, here we go. Now All the
0: rules talking. are out the window. Yeah, exactly.
1: And then Jackson Pollock was like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: grew mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And, that's
0: when,
1: and literally the floodgates of paint happened. I mean, my
0: favorite entrepreneur artist is Rembrandt. Oh,
1: Do you know the whole yeah.
0: Rembrandt story with the, the printmaking?
1: i was to have ghost painters. I was a ghost painter for four years. There you go. I was the first guy to have ghost painters. They don't know what what Rembrandt painted.
0: Totally. My favorite story about Rembrandt is when he was doing etchings. He was also notoriously poor his whole life, like because mm-hmm. he could not control his inventory, but because yeah. he was making prints instead of doing a print and printing like one of 175, right? Like most printmakers do. And you num- you number them and this is, you know, number seven, this is number yeah. 48. This is number three, you know, 112, whatever. Yeah. He would make one tiny etch on between every print. So every print was a one-of-one original. Wow. So he would print one and then make like two extra lines in the roof and then print another one and then make three other lines the other way. And so he would release everything as one-of-one. But when he went to market, he'd only release a portion of his inventory because he would wait for demand to rise. And then he'd go out there and not tell people he was Rembrandt. He'd say, these are the prints that I'm selling today from this famous artist, Rembrandt, and you must buy it. And then if somebody was interested, he'd be like, I have three more in the back and I can sell them to you. And he would like slowly drip them out over time. And if he was gaining in popularity, he would release more prints and he would have this huge stack. And he's like, Oh, they're all originals. (laughs) They're all one of one. And then would slowly put them out over time. But he is the first artist that they really kind of credit to like being in control of that artist economy, even though he was bad at it, but he was like playing the game. Right. And that's gotta be something that you still try to deal with. It's like, I can imagine that you have a collection that you're so excited to put out there, but you're like, do I want this to all go out at once? Like, is it finished or what's the deal? Like, how do you kind of strike the balance between artist versus like brand or or creator or entrepreneur in that way?
1: Uh, Yeah. So that's a good question. So basically the fact that I, so I learned how to do art and this is a, a, a thing that I've learned, um, from several artists and 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 have read like um what's the million dollar shark have you read that no it's it's damien hearse book about how he sold the the great white the, the great white shark and basically it's learn in a big city go to a small pond control that and then move back to the big city and so basically i'm in that other realm of moving back to the big city right now and so when I was up in Bend, my biggest way to brand, I mean, Instagram does do good for me. But what I find is that my clientele uh, that actually makes me money don't dance around that a lot. So Mm -hmm. my biggest thing was just get my art in front of eyeballs in the real world. Um, Because I can't be like, my art takes a while to do. And also if I was to actually film it, which I, I'm going to start doing or experiment. You absolutely should, yes. Yeah, yeah, is the process of it. But I also read a book on, on Salvador Dali, how he was like, don't let them behind the the curtain, you know?
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, he's like, don't let them see how the magic's done. So I'm kind of like, I'm kind of always, I'm always teetering on like, How much do I let people know, but Mm -hmm. how much do I want it to be a mystery on how this is done? Because then when people see how it's done, you know, like Jackson Pollock or something like my uncle used to say is like, I don't get artists. I could have done that dumb crap. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you didn't like Mm -hmm. you didn't do it like Mm -hmm. he was the first guy to do it. And uh, you didn't, you know. So it's always kind of that teeter-totter balance of like, how much do I pull the silk curtain around? I'm team
0: like, let it all hang out. Like I am very much team like, share everything because there's so much, the culture has shifted so much, I think as well to letting that people behind the curtain, they feel more invested in the brand. And when I get to show a logo process or walk somebody through my thought process, it lands me more clients than as if I just were saying, say, here's the finished piece, right? So yeah. I find that that really helps. But then again, I'm in a branding kind of space, I think people would be really curious to see your process. Because I think for someone who doesn't understand the technicality of art, they don't appreciate the steps that you're taking, and especially the materiality of the work that you do. I think yeah. you should totally share it. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do with my Instagram story. So like, if I have a process with like the painting behind me, I'll show how I dye them and stuff, but I just, sure and then like, you know, do like the whitewash and then bring in the elements to actually make the paint. I do do that with my stories. I just don't collaborate and do a 30 yeah. second video yet. So, but I mean, at the same time, there's, that's also as you I'm sure know that's time there's money mm-hmm. involved and that's energy. And what, by the time you get done with doing a you know, a painting that takes 20 hours. You're like, Oh, do I have to edit this video? But I mean, it's all, it's stuff that needs to be.
0: Well, I have this conversation with my friend, Stephanie all the time, because she really struggles with like, you're saying how much to show the effort of it all. And that you guys actually, by making paintings, you create content for a living. Like you are a content creator. The content is just paintings. So to have to be a content creator on top of being a content creator is exhausting. And yeah. understandably so, right? But I think that it it does. It's a really weird dynamic that we have now between how we consume content online and then also how we interact with things in person. Um, I don't know that if I saw that piece online, I would have gone for it, but it's because I saw it in person and because I had a reaction and because I was with all my friends and it's more than now, it's also the story of being there drinking wine with my friends in a place that we love to go. Yeah. And it was a painting of a place that I love to go to. I was like, well, duh, no brainer, like sold. Well-
1: well, and word of mouth marketing is totally. like 90 to, to 10 better than any other advertising. I mean, if you go to your friends and you say, Hey, uh, saw this guy's art, he came over, hung it for me. Great experience, Loved the painting. And then I podcasted with them. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna be sure. a bigger voice than if I had a radio ad for know, sure. or something like that. For sure. But yeah. yeah, so that was that was always my plan. But in Bend, it was really nice because I had like boutique shops, but At the same time, like one of my favorite quotes is you can't get, uh, you can't make a baby in a month by getting nine women pregnant. You know, it just takes time. I have never
0: heard that one before. (laughs) It's
1: Warren Buffett. It's like one of my favorite quotes ever. It just means be patient, work hard, and it will all come. So, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I got the show at Carruth. I've, Officially started selling art like I had a meeting at a client's house the other night for two paintings that are similar to yours. They actually nice. bought, they actually wanted to buy your painting at, the bad. day after you had yeah. purchased it. <laughs> yeah, so I basically resold it to them with some tweaks and sizing tweaks. Sure. But if you go to my Instagram, I used to do this style that's like these waves mm-hmm. that are very, um, I don't want to give it away quite yet because uh-huh. I'm going to kind of start morphing my style into Two factors, the the fabric factor and then these waves. But if you go back through, there was, uh, I, I did these, like, I would basically take a ruler or like a stick, and then I would just take like a knife to it and just hack at it. So it had okay. all these, like, look like a comb. Then mm-hmm. I would take like mortar or cement, and I would put it over a board, paint the board some color, and then I would etch these waves into them that would actually look like surfing waves, like a wave cool. you could surf and they sold really, really well. And I actually had a uh, Ronald, the Ronald McDonald house mm-hmm. does a giveaway here once a year called the Dream House. Have mm-hmm. you heard of that? Mm-hmm. So they commissioned me to do a painting inside of the Dream House. And then I, I was there with Tony Hawk. Cool. And he, yeah. And he was like skateboarding with his daughter around my painting. I think the video is on my Instagram. But, and I was like, I was like, well, why would I give up that style? Like, right, so, right. so in the no, future, it's just, I'm going to start morphing that.
0: Yeah. I think as an artist too, and as a creative, like the more people you meet, the more your style can evolve as a reflection of who you are and in the context. Right. So I yeah. had a really hard time in college making art because I was not the kid with the sketchbook. I, if you gave me a prompt, I could make something, but I didn't have like a traumatic past. I didn't have like all of these torture oh, demons, I, kind of, us, and that I. a lot of people make art from that place. And right. I always felt really, really insecure about calling myself an artist because I was interested in like feedback loops. And so I set up a projector. My senior thesis was a projector pointed at a wall with a webcam on top, where if you stood in the plane of the webcam, you also were repeated into digital infinity in the projection. So it was this oh, weird- that's cool. It was super cool. It was this commentary on screens and like how we relate to screens and how we see ourselves. And some of my other pieces were very much about like kind of hidden camera style, like voyeurism, kind of similar to Vermeer. But how do you take that and put it in like a more modern context or that kind of thing? But it it's crazy to think that all of that stuff, I was thinking, same thing, 2012, um, 2013 era kind of is circulating back around now. Like we're oh, talking yeah. about- how we relate to screens, how we talk to to each other through screens. And it just is crazy how much you don't think that you're what you thought about a long time ago, then informs where you are now.
1: Oh, I a hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. I mean, I had, I've had ideas in the past that I was like, well, if I just stick with it, it's something new. It's something original. Uh, like I wanted to make a drone, that could have like an aperture on it that would just do halftone dots on a wall. And now I'm seeing drones. And that was like 2013. I was like, man, if you Mm -hmm. had this drone that could do just dots, right? A dot matrix. But once you looked at it from like the ground,
0: Mm -hmm. it looked like
1: the Mona Lisa, right? Mm -hmm. And the drone goes up and just makes dots and then you look from the ground and you could do it on government buildings and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. there's no street artists involved, but that was very Banksy. And
0: yeah. But I was going to say very Banksy of you. Yeah, um, yeah. Very exciting. Are there artists, I know you said Basquiat, are there other artists that absolutely those are the hill you're willing to die on. Those are your favorites.
1: Yeah. I mean, I love Warhol, but of course, God, I've just done so much of his art. <laughs> I mean, almost like to a T I'm like, I'm so exhausted from Warhol. I have the Andy
0: Warhol diaries right on my bookshelf right behind this. Oh, so yeah,
1: <laughs> I get you. Don't get me wrong. I love the guy to death, but it's right. like, once you watch, you know, a movie or do listen to a, an album too many times, you're like, I'm good on that for, for a mm-hmm. while. But uh, I would say, um, I would say Jackson Pollock, I've seen his work in person. And just the fact that like, you see it so much now where people are just splatting paint and it's like, you don't realize how much of a game changer that was in the 1950s when he did it for the first time, like in his movies and stuff. When, uh, Oh, what's the actor's name who, who depicted him in his, in his, uh, what was it? Not a documentary, but just the movie about his life. The biopic. Yeah.
0: I don't remember the actor's name, but I do have a favorite conspiracy theory about Jackson Pollock that I want to run by you. Oh, really? It's not even conspiracy because it's somewhat confirmed. That most artists that were making art, so Pollock, Rothko, around that era. Oh, um, I love were, Rothko, by the way. Yes, we're love getting Rothko. We're getting grants to do their work, right? So they were applying for grants, getting funding, et cetera. Mm-hmm. As and their work is considered to be like anti-government, anti-establishment, right? The great irony Rothko's is
1: big square colors are so anti-government, <laughs> right? But at but the that time, you was like, oh my gosh, are they communists?
0: Totally. But the great irony of this is that a lot of the grants that they were receiving were actually funded by the U S government as a way yeah. to distract people from communism. Oh. So it's kind of this weird thing where there's now these leaked papers that have happened, like that have come out in the last, I don't know, five or six years that are saying that actually the government were funding artists during that era to create, artwork, you know, even up until the 70s, like about the war yeah. in Vietnam, et cetera, to like to create discourse within the U.S. to keep people yeah. distracted from what was going on politically overseas.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess at that mm-hmm. time, too, like, I mean, if you think about post social media, post Internet, post anything, I mean, unless it was a big movie, which weren't coming out like they are now. Which, God, how stupid are Marvel movies, but Mm -hmm. that's a side note. Oh, yeah,
0: I'm with you on that a 1,000. Yeah, a (laughs) 1,000.
1: But, like, I mean, Rothko, his first big commission was at a restaurant, and the restaurant owner hated it, and he spit in the restaurant on his face, and, like, these are your paintings. And it's, like, Rothko's paintings are so freaking amazing. And then what I find so funny is when I talk about Rothko or Joseph Albers, Mm -hmm. who's, like, one of my heroes too it's Mm -hmm. so simplistic but it just at the time you have to put yourself back at the time i mean Mm -hmm. imagine looking at the first like telephone or seeing the first light bulb it's like nowadays people are like light bulbs are everywhere this stuff's you know whatever but it's like Mm -hmm. holy cow these guys are coming up with ideas of working with color and shape and and geometry in ways that
0: are so new to everyone it's so
1: new you're like yeah, it's scary almost. Yeah, and you're like, these guys are gonna come in and take place of presidential portrait artists and stuff. Totally.
0: And like, oh my god, this is insane. Totally. It's okay, scary. love it or hate it. I'm. A, I have three artists in mind that I want your hot hot take on. Okay. Love it or hate it. Anish Kapoor and the Blackest Black.
1: Uh, uh. Love Anish Kapoor, probably one of my favorite artists. I hate the bean. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I I hate it because I love it, but I Uh hate it because I've just seen it so much. And I'm like, the people that take photos around the Bean don't understand who Anish Kapoor is. Because he's like a psychopathic...
0: He's like the asshole of the art world right now. Oh, he's
1: the biggest asshole. He's He's the the biggest asshole. Yeah, but that's what makes him great. I mean, when he takes... Like his clay mud and and shoves it through a door frame, and he's like, "That's it, that's it." <laughs> and it's so dramatic, and it and the colors he uses, like when he does the sand sculptures, yes. mm-hmm. and you're like, "Dude, the colors you use when he bought the the deepest black and the pinkest pink, you're like, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: like mm-hmm. I hate you. I love to hate you because mm-hmm. it's so his Controversial. colors. Just his colors just bring in this weird like deep-seated expression of humanity you're like he just pours the color over a sandpit and you're like oh my god it it, like scares you and you're like it's just a pile of sand but his
0: stuff is alarmingly good like it's It's annoyingly good and i've seen it and i've seen it in portugal i've seen it in singapore i've seen his stuff like all over london like and just you're there and i always am drawn to it even before i read the plaque Because I know his style by now. But when you actually stand in front of it and it's just a giant blackest black circle you've ever seen in Singapore, you're just like, God, I hate it, but I love it. (laughs) I hate it so much. I hate it so much, but I love
1: it. It reminds me of like a Disney villain. You know, it's like, yes, it's like Ursula or it's like Jafar from Aladdin. You're like, Mm -hmm. God damn it. I hate this guy. I hate that but it's if so it good. Wasn't for this guy, this movie would suck. Exactly. You know, you're like, oh, I love you. You're here for a great reason. Mm-hmm. But you're like, if it wasn't for you, the movie would absolutely be shit. Totally.
0: <laughs> Second one, Jeff Koons. How do we feel about the giant uh, of okay, Jeff dog Koons is animals. like,
1: okay, I love Jeff Koons. But the thing about Jeff Koons is that I've tried to do a deep dive on his work and I'm like, I can only see balloon animals so many times. Like I I've I've dug into his work and I'm like it's great. Don't get me wrong, he's a genius. But he's like he's like the Ned Flanders of freaking the art world, you know, minus the religion aspect where Ned's always like telling Homer to get to church. It's like okay, ball out of the park. The the balloon dog was amazing. Do sure. not get me wrong. But and then look, he started tying into other shapes and it's yeah. like, ah, I've seen this one trick pony before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then when he did like the heart, cause mm-hmm. I have, I have all the Sotheby's and I'm like, mm-hmm. when I saw the heart, I was like basic, like, can mm-hmm. we put some live, laugh, love on that shit? Mm-hmm. Like that looks like someone who's like, you know, it almost looks, it's
0: to the point. Watches. Yeah. A thing almost, they start, some of the stuff from artists start to look like the riff, the cheap knockoff of the art. Like it's this weird exactly. popularity fame thing where you do one thing so well that there's now so many replicas. But I think that that's part of the conversation. And the last person I was going to ask you, which we talked about earlier, was Banksy, because that's the one that everybody who's like, "Oh, I love art," like I love okay. yeah. and they're like, "Love the guerrilla marketing of the art stuff." And you're like, "Okay, yes, but if again, if you study art history, nothing that he's doing is that crazy, realistically, right?" So yeah. nothing that he's doing is that. No, no, no. So Back, to Back to uh-huh. Jeff
1: Koons Back to Jeff Koons We glazed him too fast.
0: Okay. Hit so me.
1: he does like a master class now on art. And I'm like, I want to tell people, don't, don't do it. Don't listen to it. Because don't get me wrong. He's a genius. I mean, uh, maybe not a genius, but he just, he took the, the dog balloon. And then here's the problem with. The average art client, right scale mm-hmm. scales the worst mm-hmm. you could you could make an amazing abstract painting, but if it's only this big, mm-hmm. guess what people ain't gonna love it now you take that exact same freaking abstract and you make it 10 by ten on a wall in a beautiful room it changes the game it like when you saw my painting in person mm-hmm. right. As opposed to going to my Instagram, sure. you're like, oh my God, it's like seeing silence of the lambs in theaters rather than watching on it your on phone. my cell phone. Yes. You know, that's that is Jeff Koons. And then he just took the same idea, which was good for one concept, morphed it into a bunch, and those things are amazing. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, I'm not taking away from mm-hmm. his credibility or quality of work. We should start an art podcast, but yeah. The way. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. No, that would but, be great. Uh, but yeah and i'm like okay i get it i get it where's this idea going it just was going right. down it was like a roller coaster that went like mm-hmm. boom and then just flattened Flat out lines. yeah and it's like it's like okay i get you and then he tried to morph it into paintings and stuff and i'm like i love them but your dog was a++ everything else is like a minus b plus everything right. else with jeff koons but he he peaked like a mountain top like that and then he yeah. just went like yep. this. and it's
0: he's the reason why people get mad that artists make money because it's in opposition yeah. to the starving artist stereotype, right? Like there's also this huge stereotype that if you have this kind of skill set that other people don't have, that you should just just by the mere fact of creating that should be enough for you. And you shouldn't actually be profitable, let alone be like so that, profitable that you're a super artist.
1: Guess what? Artists that want to complain about. Capitalism are
0: not selling any
1: work. <laughs> You're a bunch of freaking crybaby losers. Get to work. You don't want yep. to <laughs> smoke cigarettes in the corner. You can mm-hmm. eh, have the personality. Realize your personality. Morph it into your work. Try to and make it consumerable.
0: Yeah, we're all yeah, in like the business of like surfer. selling ourselves. I try to
1: post as mm-hmm. much of me surfing and stuff as I can because I know that's kind of my style and that's who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, like Anish Kapur, for example, he's a fucking asshole. His artwork looks like him. Like, yes. It represents him as being my artwork is in your face and I'm an asshole. And that's it's weirdly bizarre how it works. And same with Jeff Koons. Jeff Koons is like, I'm licking a lollipop that will never stop. It's mm-hmm. like when a kid gets a lollipop mm-hmm. this big, that's Jeff mm-hmm. Koons. Then he got Banksy, who's like, I found a really good slice of pizza in the trash. Like yes. it's a, someone just threw away a perfect slice of pizza, but it's on top of the garbage pile.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're
1: like, do I eat that slice of pizza? And you're uh-huh. like, but you're also like half drunk, stumbling home from the bar in London. And you're like, I'm going to eat that pizza. Mm-hmm. That's Banksy. But he also changed the motherfucking game. Like
0: He changed totally. the game like the
1: Beatles. He changed the game like, he changed the effing game. There was a
0: TikTok that went viral of a girl who was in somewhere in Europe or New York or something. And she walked up and there was just one guy with like one tarp selling prints uh-huh. and she bought one. Did you hear this? And it was like, oh, it was yeah. no, to be actually video.
1: him. Yeah. How
0: yeah. nuts is that? I love that. I love the theatricality of that. Like that's oh, yeah. that's fun. That brings it beyond just the work and it becomes more of a performance piece. It becomes yeah. a Marina Abramovic piece. It becomes a, where is the art? Is the art in the physical thing or is the art who the act? Is the art? Who is the art? Exactly.
1: Yeah, and the interpretation of it becomes vague. Like, like obviously, there's some stuff with Banksy where it's like it's like, okay, I get, I get the message, but if if the message is here or here, Banksy's always here. You mm-hmm. know, he's never like, oh man, you know, screw this political party or screw this. I I right. you know he's always just kind of. He rolls the dice, but he's got like a 24-sided dice. And you're yeah. like, you're like, where like when he did that that boutique shop in London mm-hmm. on the corner, mm-hmm. and then it had the rugs that said welcome, but it had like an axe between it, and then the the animated head of the mm-hmm. deer that looked like a mm-hmm. Disney. I mean, it's just
0: chaos. Just like,
1: dude, you're, and then the <laughs> kid's crib with all the cameras. uh uh-huh. You're like, dude, uh-huh. you are so fucking genius, but at the same time, like I could never do that. That's no. like and then but right. then you see a bunch of artists trying to copycat that. Right. Like I work for a gallery right now in La Jolla, and he's like, I love this artist. And I was like, Cool. It looks just like Cause. Yeah. Identical to Cause. I was, I mean, it wasn't like the X's and the X's i's is on the and eyes. All that yeah. shit. But like the shadowing on harsh colors, you know, neon yellows on reds with like Prussian blues. As shadow, I was like, looks like Kazi's like, I know, right? And I was like, I- it totally does yeah, like, but as an artist, artist you, looks-
0: you want to look like you you want to have your own style where somebody no. says, Oh, that looks like so and so. Like that looks like yeah. you. It's like, okay, yes, totally. And I'd no, I get
1: struggle that. Yes. All day as an artist, then and I got caught copying an artist one time and I felt horrible. horrible. I mm-hmm. went right back over. And I was like, dude, I literally just copied you. I didn't even realize because I just saw some prints. And the artist hit me up and he's like, Yeah, really cool, man. And I was like, Dude, I'm so right. sorry. And I went back and sent him the photos. I was like, My bad. Like, yeah. I never do that. I mean, it's no. just, it's uh, plagiarism. Totally. And it's not cool. And it totally. doesn't make it feel good.
0: And it's bad karma. That's just bad yeah. universal karma. Totally.
1: Yeah. If I was Amazing. to go make an ape face, right? And then make an NFT. It's like, Right. Cool. I'm not only getting scammed by an nft which you I gotta mean, collaborate I don't know your opinion on that but I oh think yeah it's, yeah
0: you got to uh, collaborate with an nft artist you got to get somebody who wants to animate the florals and animate the patterns behind your pieces and mint them yeah. as nfts and give your top collectors this is my this is my my little brainstorm for you for today find someone who's a good animator mint the pieces as an nft gift them to your top 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 top, top patrons like the people that yeah. buy your stuff over and over again and say hey, who knows what this NFT thing will be in the future, but I want you to have this and let them talk to their friends about it. And then the more popular you get and the more we all move That's into the metaverse, idea. then they own a piece. They own one of your first five NFTs ever. That is such an asset to them because if you hinge on your success. And you can also set yeah. it that every time the NFT gets sold, you earn a royalty. So if they decide to sell your NFT, you can ah. now make passive income on every single sale in perpetuity. So every sale of your piece, you can say, oh, I'm going to take 20%. I'm going to take 15% for every sale that ever happens. And you gift
1: gift it first off. So you're like, I'll take 50% royalties.
0: Yeah, because it's a gift.
1: Okay. Okay. I like it. I like it. Smarter, not harder. I think we should start an art podcast because that was too good.
0: That would be great, right? I know we're ripped
1: apart so many. Totally,
0: I mean, I could talk about it all day, but not a lot of people know the art history of it. Not a lot of people have an understanding.
1: Mm -hmm. Like I was telling you about my uncle, like he was like, "Oh, so you're an artist, right?" And I was like, "Dude, I make literally fifty percent of my income. Like Mm -hmm. I work for you, and then I work for, you know, Mm -hmm. and doing my own thing." And he's like, "Well, I mean, shit, it looks so stupid, and then you don't make any money until you die." And I'm like. Okay. That's
0: so old school though. That's such yeah, an old school like, understanding. Cool. Yeah,
1: man. I love being on my deathbed and being like, really glad I bought that, uh, extra, you know, thingamajig. Sure,
0: sure, sure, sure. Amazing. Well, where can everybody see some of your work? Of course, this is an audio um, platform. So we're talking yeah. about all kinds of visual things, but if people want to see your stuff, maybe buy your stuff, check it out in person, where can they find you and follow you and connect?
1: Totally. So probably visually, uh, my Instagram at Yozamp, Y-O-Z-A-M-P, just type it in Instagram, got that name. Uh, my website, richardjamesyozamp.com. There's a link to that in my Instagram. Got the show at Caruth on the 9th. I will be working on paintings for that tonight.
0: Nice. Which is going to be
1: great. <laughs> but I'm so cool. exhausted. I do work for galleries all day. So like I work for two galleries here in San Diego. So I do like shipping and logistics for them during the day. Nice. And then paint during the night. So I'm like beat. And then yeah, that's about it. Facebook, you could type my name in. But I mean, I don't know. Anybody over 55 is watching this. (laughs) Really using Facebook. But um, yeah, so that's about it.
0: Great. Perfect. Well, the other little nugget I'll give you is while you are doing your paintings tonight for Groove, either set up a time lapse, camera somewhere in the corner, or okay. just live stream it on your Instagram. Go live on Instagram. Set up the camera. <laughs> just go for it and see if anybody pops in and says hi.
1: Sweet. Uh, well, I want to get like a little 4K camera Yeah. that I have separate. I think they're like 200 bucks on Amazon. And then yep. set that up and then like link totally. it to the camera. But we'll catch up later about all For this sure. Stuff.
0: For <laughs> sure. Thanks so much I, for joining this, us. This was I awesome. I talking
1: art with you. And it, I'm telling you right now, it is so rare to find someone who I could like really cut the cut the cloth with
0: with art so we should uh, should do this
1: again like maybe in like three or four months
0: definitely definitely well thanks everybody for listening and thanks for tuning in don't forget to go check out richard's stuff at yozamp on instagram we'll link it in the show notes as well and we'll catch you next time The Kiss My Aesthetic Facebook group is also going to be a killer resource for you to ask questions, get feedback on anything branding, marketing, or entrepreneurship related. And to catch today's show notes or anything that we talked about in this episode, make sure you go to mkwcreative.co slash kmapod. We'll catch you next time.